Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the No Vertical Podcast with your hosts, Alex and Billy. Today on the podcast, we uh, talk about Buffalo's scorching hot record the past four games, St. John's roller coaster ride continuing, and Syracuse dropping an opportunity to take down a shoeless Sion Williamson. <laughs> All right, so, so just getting into it a little bit. Uh, Buffalo, Alex, mm. how impressive have the Bulls been? winning the last four out of four, um, absolutely routing Ohio, and and just taking down Kent State. Yeah, it's been pretty – for the last couple of games, I mean, they won five in a row. So, clearly they're doing a lot better than they than we were seeing them play in that little stre- that little four-game stretch there where they lost the two to NIU and to um, uh, Bowling Green. So it's been nice to see the uptick in scoring, especially, um, and consistency, and then just annihilating teams that really have should have no chance against them from what they've shown all year. Yeah, I think I think these, uh, you know, the the third and f- the first two wins they had um, last week. Uh, you know, they were they were games that they handled. You know, uh, probably a little bit less than they should have uh-huh. um there you weren't getting like balanced scoring and whatnot um in those games the, the margin of victory was i think six points or so um so i think seeing that they stayed the same position in the ap poll at 25 coming into this week i think that that really lit a fire under them and i think nato you know rallied the troops and and that's what led to the these just absolute annihilation games that we got to see this past week yeah, I, I'd agree. I think that Nate Oates does a nice job of kind of lighting the fire under the guys and making sure that when they play down the next game, they definitely don't play down. So they had two two back-to-back games that were probably a little bit closer than they would have liked them to be and um, did a nice job of turning it around and then just absolutely demolishing the next two games. So just looking in at that game against Ohio, you had four guys in double figures. Um, Graves was at his best, uh, going for 26 points, mm. uh, four rebounds, and then uh, a steal, a block, and uh, and I don't even. I've, I'm just blown away by by that stat line by Javon Graves. Yeah, um, very impressive. You know, uh, you got production out of the normal guys as well. Um, and you also got to see Jonathan Williams like really come into his own, as well as uh, McCray. They uh, combined for 24 points and and 15 rebounds. Um, and NATO has to be happy getting production like that out of those guys, you know. Um, so often, you, you look for the big three pretty much in terms of scoring on that team, and Perkins, Harris, and CJ. And you know, mm-hmm. get, being able to get top to bottom production out of your lineup, it, it's going to help you going into the MAC tournament for sure. Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, they've gotten some more help in the, in the scoring department than those three that you mentioned. Um, Graves playing as well as he played in that Ohio game was obviously a big component of why they blew them out so so big. Um, but that'll be – if he can keep that consistency up, I'm not saying he has to score 20-plus, but if he can score in double figures – consistently throughout the rest of the season and into the tournament, they're going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah, and, and just to follow up that performance with, with the game that they had at Alumni against Kent State, 
on Friday. Um, you know, Perkins took advantage of that game. I think they, from what I noticed, they kind of sagged on him a little bit um, in terms of perimeter, and he was able to knock down two from five uh, from three-point land. And I think, you know, just his ability to cut to the basket as well and, and being out on the perimeter mm-hmm. and requiring, you know, guys to guard him pretty closely, I think mm-hmm. that was a big turning point. Kent State could not keep up with Perkins in this one. Um, and, you know, it, it led to a lot of foul trouble for, for Kent State as well, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't think that Nick Perkins is going to be a consistently, consistently an outside shooter, but – when he can start hitting some outside shots down, I think that'll that obviously helps everybody else's game. Opens up lanes and the in uh, driving lanes and opens up uh, other players to get other opportunities. So it was nice to see the big guy get uh, get some outside shots to go in. Yeah, and you know, Massenberg, even though he scared us at one point with the ankle injury, um, yeah, he still played incredibly well. Um, you know, he had eighteen five and five. Um, then he moved into UB's uh, all-time scoring list up to third on the list now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing what that kid has been able to do going from where he was coming out of high school to uh, accomplishing so much in his four years so far at UB um, that, you know, I think that's that's just an exemplary of, of what the program is trying to build and, and you know, what Nate, the culture that Nate Oates has cultivated. Now, going into that, you see what Nate Oates has done with this squad. Um, I know we've already talked about this on the podcast, but as these offers keep coming up, you know, like you, you right. see programs tanking and tanking. Do you see any any avenues where um, these programs would seriously consider Nate Oates in terms of a remodel type deal? Um, no specific programs come to mind. Uh, I think that... Nate Oates is very happy where he is right now. I think that he is he understands the amount of uh, I guess effort that's gone into recreating this program and how much effort he's put into recreating this program and I think that he's gonna try to continue to ride the wave and see if maybe they can change conferences. I think that would be a, a big uh, staying point for him if they can change conferences that'll open up opportunities and open up more revenue and allow them to bump up his salary a little bit more but I think that if um, down the line in the next couple of years if that doesn't happen there's obviously going to be people trying to get him so it will, it'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years and I like we've said before we I don't know the terms of his contract or anything like that but I think that he likes where the team's at right now, and he likes where they're headed. So I don't foresee him going anywhere anytime soon. And and I don't either, um, especially with the crew that they have coming in. You know, they have right. two of the best JUCO guys coming in in the country. You have Graves returning. You know, you have Sagu's having a great year. Um, you have uh, Trevon Fagan, who doesn't see much playing time now, but he, he's going to be a rising star, I think, in this team going forward. Um, yeah, I think I think the sky's the limit with, with what NATO can do with Buffalo. Um, I mean, just look at what he's what he's done with with the guys. Mm-hmm. Just take last game for example. You know, you have your your 
af- absolute uh, defensive bulldog in, in Carruthers, um, who shuts guys down game in, game out. He gets into major foul trouble. You have other guys on that team because of the culture you instilled at the program that will fight and get turnovers. They've, they right. forced 24 turnovers with Carruthers seeing just 13 minutes of action. You know, and I right. think Buffalo knows how important it is to have Nate Oates at that program because that's exemplary of the culture that he started there with having guys bust their butt, you know, 40 minutes out on that court. Right. And it didn't even matter that Carruthers wasn't even able to play in this one because the rest of his guys picked him up and forced those turnovers to force the transition points and put Buffalo out in front of this one. So I think, right. you know, Buffalo knows the kind of guy Nate Oates is. Nate Oates understands what the, what the culture is at Buffalo and the community is at Buffalo. I don't see him jumping ship for a glamorous job in Southern California down at UCLA. You know what I'm saying? He, he's a gritty yeah, guy, fair. and I think uh, that matches up perfectly with the, the culture that Buffalo is cultivating right now. Yeah, absolutely. But then again, you know, you do have those surprising things. Like, <clears throat> for personal experience, uh, Mike Hopkins leaving. You yeah. Know? So you never can really foresee those things coming. Um, so who knows what's going to happen, but it'll be interesting to see for sure. I think that right now he's happy where he's at, though. All right. And moving on along over to Syracuse. Alex, take it away. Yeah. So it's been kind of a crazy ride. Just a little um, bit. Uh, you know, they went from beating a really good Louisville team who was ranked 16th at the time. The team was riding high. And then the absolutely horrific news that broke that night about Jim Beheim striking a man with his car and killing him, driving on 690 in Syracuse after the the man was um, just involved in a collision in – a, car accident himself so that kind of shifted the focus of the game a little bit away from okay Zion Williamson's out how does Duke how does Duke perform to Jim Beheim just accidentally killed a man what's going to happen now and I honestly I talked to you a little bit about it I didn't think he was going to even be there I didn't think he was going to coach um I think it was better for him that he was there I think that like in personal, in, for personal experience, I, like it's sometimes when you're going through hard things, it's better to turn your mind off from just that and switch to something you enjoy. So it was nice to see him still on the sidelines. It was really nice to see the reaction of the record-breaking crowd, um, just showing him full support and full love. Coach K, who's a really good friend of his, obviously, um, showing him some love before the game and probably reaching out to him before the game. But I think during the game, you saw the glaring differences between a really, really good team and Duke with consistent scoring from two two or three players, I guess, mostly two in that game, um, to a Syracuse team that's very up and down and very, very much so is riding – the performance of Tyus Battle and the number of threes that they're hitting um, and their defense. Duke was able to break down their defense pretty well, and R.J. Barrett's just a monster. So it was a pretty outstanding game from R.J. Barrett. Some of the shots he was hitting were just absolutely ridiculous, like unguardable shots. He was double-teamed and hitting hook shots over people. So 
Um, the game itself was a, a really nice game to watch for about 30 minutes, <laughs> you know. And then Alex O'Connell decided to go off for 17 in the second half. R.J. Barrett went off. Cam Reddish started getting more involved. And in my opinion, they didn't miss Zion that much. What do you think? No, I mean, I think, I mean, despite even still jacking up a lot of threes, you know, Duke realizes that they're much better when they get to the hoop. Um, yeah. You know. And in transition. Yeah, exactly, in transition. And I think RJ really capitalized on that. You know, he, he gets overshadowed a lot by Zion. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, he's still probably the second pick coming out of this draft class. So, right. you know, it, you always have to respect what everyone else brings to the table. Yeah, it would have been great for Syracuse to to steal one at home against the Zionless Duke team and, and complete the season sweep. But, you know, I'm not really too shocked because this Duke team has a lot of talent despite, you know, it's, it's kind of lack of depth at times. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that you, you can't take him for granted um, whatsoever, even, even without Zion, you know. Right. I mean, they still obviously have two top five picks. Yeah. And that's a lot more than any other team. So they're a formidable team regardless of if Zion's there, if RJ's, if Zion's not there, if RJ's not there. Um, the dynamic was a little different this game versus the game in Cameron. I think that a lot – a lot of the game in Cameron was determined by Ty's battle. Ty's battle was had 30-plus in that game. And in this game, he was silent for the most part. Um, so as of right now, I'm not really sure what the team looks like going forward. Um, I think they're just going to be up and down the remainder of the season. They have a really, really tough schedule left to play. Um, coming up just on Tuesday against North Carolina, who's going to be moving up in the rankings. They'll probably be in the top five. Um, so there, there's no letdown after this. Like even Clemson's no joke. So I, I foresee a, a tough game in their future in North Carolina. I think that they're going to struggle down the down the stretch, but. If they can get wins against Wake Forest and Clemson at least, we're going to be in a really good spot. That's a lot. That'll be 11 wins in the ACC. And anytime you get nine-plus wins in the ACC, it's almost a guaranteed spot in the tournament. So I think that we'll be okay. Um, we just can't lose the games that we're supposed to win. No, I mean, and but I, I don't even know if you can really call this game you're supposed to win because you have Duke coming out, you know, firing on all cylinders. Uh, oh no, I wouldn't. I wasn't. I honestly wasn't expecting that. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, you also have to imagine they lost big time to UNC, so they're going right. to come out hungry. You know exactly. I was. That's what I. That, that was part of the reason I was most worried because, you know, Duke is was going to be coming out regardless of Zion being there, not wanting to number one avenge a loss from earlier in the season that took them from number one to not number one anymore, and trying to make up for a blowout against UNC. So they were going to be coming out aggressive and not taking their foot off the gas the whole game anyways. So. And you also have to remember in that game, there was no Trey Jones. 
um, right. after I think I don't remember the exact minute that he he left the game. Um, I, I believe Cam Reddish wasn't playing in that one as well. Yeah, Cam yeah. Reddish was sick. so. I mean, you know, not not to discredit Syracuse for what they did because winning, you know, in Cameron on like on the road like that against any Duke team is difficult. But you right. know, they also did not see the same caliber Duke team that they saw. Very true. And Trey Jones is a, an engine for that team. So yeah, even when he's not shooting well, like he didn't shoot well against Syracuse. Um, but just his energy and and the spark that he provides mm-hmm. there, it, it, it's unmatched. You know, O'Connell, even though he did start in this one, usually backs up Trey Jones, and and he he doesn't provide that. Right. Um, all right. So Alex, an interesting that stat though that that we talked about a little bit earlier mm-hmm. um, was Syracuse has only won a game um, twice this season in regulation, in which they had given up seventy points to the opponent. Um, what does that mean to you, and what does that that mean going forward if you're Jim Beheim in Syracuse? So, I take that as uh, a sign that Syracuse struggles against uh, high-powered offenses. I take that as a sign that their defense predicates how they play on offense. Um, I think that they have the ability to keep games at a low score regularly, which they do regularly, um, but they don't have the firepower currently to go punch for punch with a team that's scoring at a high clip. Um, That being said, they have won games that are in high scoring numbers. Like, they put up 80 points here and there, but it's not very consistent. And usually it's only when a Tyus Battle or an Elijah Hughes just goes off. So I think that the biggest sign for the future is can they sure up their defense enough and not allow people to expose the holes in the zone enough to keep the scores low. Um, I think that's e- the reason they they surprise people in the tournament is because not a lot of people see that matchup zone throughout the season. And that throws them off. It throws them off their game. It doesn't allow them to have the flow that they have and doesn't provide for as many scoring opportunities. So that's typically why Syracuse does better in the tournament. Um, but that being said, if they get into a shootout, it's going to be hard unless you get contributions from Hughes, Battle, Frank Howard, and Brissett. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, it's an interesting stat for sure. Not surprising, but interesting. I agree with you there. You know, it's going to be it's going to be rough if they run into you know an all out barrage that a team like Marquette or Buffalo can deal you. You know. Um, so it'll be something to keep an eye on. I think if if they match up with a team that's really good in transition, I think that's where we're going to see Syracuse end mm. up jumping ship and, and mm-hmm. getting knocked out of the tournament. But I think, you know, they will take a lot of teams, like you said, off guard with their zone. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how much energy they're going to bring in preventing uh, second chance opportunities and, you know, I think I think a big guy to watch in this is going to be Chuku down low, um, what he can do if he can have consistently good games. You know, yeah. I think they'll be able to hold teams uh, to, you know, shooting the ball 
and scoring like 65, 66 games right in their, right in that sweet spot for them um, to take advantage of and get the victory. But, you know, it's, it, it's going to be a lot of things. And, and I, I, I just see it as, as a bit of a, something that scares me because they can't generate the offense to hang with a team if it goes into, right. um, you know, an all out barn burner on offense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Which, and sorry to yeah. cut you off, but, um yeah so i think that um they'll be able to keep up with teams throughout the tournament um but i tweeted about this on the on the page the other day that next season is looking pretty good for us buddy Beheim's going to be a sophomore he's going to have a little more pep in his step and he's going to be a little more confident i think and then we're bringing in a couple really good young recruits including joe gerard who is an absolute sniper from three. So now with two high-powered three-point shooters on the team, that'll help a lot. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Syracuse can do as seeing as they can shake up their, their mold that they've kind of fallen into the past couple seasons. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and moving on to the absolute roller coaster ride that is St. <laughs> John's. They decide they're going to get – absolutely destroyed following uh, against Providence, following a big win against Villanova, only to then get the revenge over Seton Hall and beat mm-hmm. a possible tournament team out of New Jersey. So I don't know what to make of the Johnnies at this point. You know, it, it kind of feels like when there's ups, they're, they're, you know, momentous peaks. And then when there's downs, we are at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. So – just looking back on what happened in this Providence game. So I don't know if you were watching Alex, but Marvin Clark, one of the, one of the key guys to St. John's, he's been in foul trouble a lot this season. And, you know, at times it's because he's playing a position he's not comfortable with, you know, in, in mm. moving to the, to the four of the five, really. Um, he's more of a three, four kind of guy, but it, it, between that and just, you know, getting lazy and reaching in, he, he always finds himself in foul trouble this season and something mm-hmm. he's been struggling with. So at this point, Clark picks up his fourth foul in the beginning of the second half. And after sitting for a lot of the first half with, uh, I believe it was three fouls. So he, of course, is upset. You know, what happens? Draws a tech. So he fouls out of the game early in the second half while things were still somewhat manageable. And not only, it, it may have been maybe three minutes went by. And Clark gets called for a technical foul from the bench and is ejected from the game. That's that's pretty much sums up what happened in Providence. Okay. And uh, it did not – It did. the rest of the team, you know, pretty much followed suit. It looked like the guys just gave up in this one. Pons scored, I think, four points. Um, you know, Simon didn't look that great. Uh, Clark, I told you, fouled out, got ejected. Right. Um, LJ had some energy there, but it, it just wasn't enough to spark this team. And they they just don't match up well against uh, a a big lineup, and especially guys that can bruise you down low. And what surprised me was though, once the game was kind of the towel was thrown in, St. John's brought in uh, the bench guys. So you had the freshmen playing in in Roberts, Kada, uh, sorry, uh, Erlington. And Williams, in addition to seeing, you know, C.D. Kata out on the floor um, and Trimble. And I got to say, the freshmen surprised me. 
you know? Mm-hmm. They provided a lot of height to a lineup that St. John's isn't typically accustomed to having in Erlington on the court, um, as well as Kata and Roberts. Sure. And and I got to say, you know, they, they showed me some real heart. They showed me some hustle. And what happened in the game against Seton Hall, we see all these guys come out into the court and make appearances throughout the game. And I think this is something that Mullen wanted to maybe do early in the season, but, you know, it's Mullen, and we didn't get to see sure. right. what our lineup actually had to it. And this whole time, this St. John's team has been dealing with size issues um, due to the departure of Tariq Owens down to Texas Tech. And we had the solution all along on our bench, which it if that doesn't show you how inept the coaching staff is, I don't know what <laughs> does. But it was a huge turning point. Off the bench against in the win against Seton Hall this week, we had 10 out of the 12 blocks come from the bench guys. That Where was this the whole year? Sure. You know what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, are they the most talented group? No. You know, they're freshmen. Erlington was still debating between playing football this year. Sure. So, you know, it's, it's not like we have a miracle coming off the bench, but just as a way to provide some – either rest or to alleviate some of the foul trouble that I think, you know, Marvin Clark and Justin Simon, LJ Figueroa have gotten into this year playing out of position. I think, you know, this would have made a huge difference throughout the rest of the, throughout this entire year so far in the games right. that we dropped, you know, to Georgetown where, where size was an issue um, in, in the original game against Providence where size was an issue. Um, and it'll be interesting to see going forward where these guys fit into this offense. Yeah, um, I I didn't get I didn't get a chance to catch the game, but it sounds to me like that it was more of a blind squirrel finding a nut versus is was he really the the answer to a question all year? Um, at what point in the game did he come in? Like, what was the score and what was the situation? Well, Erlington in the Seton Hall game you're talking about. Yeah, correct. They were intertwined you know st john's got out to that big 28 to 5 lead to start the game so they they kind of let the guys in a little bit but that was still first half you know and and seton hall did have runs but or they they played for for a good portion of the game that the most minutes they've seen all year i believe so you know it so it wasn't uh it wasn't just garbage all my bench right all my bench players are in no it wasn't it wasn't all garbage time okay Okay. So it, that that was the real surprising thing to me was you have the guys that can give you, you know, buffer time. They they sure. can provide, you know, some stops on defense. They might not do fantastic on offense, but you have you are you have the opportunity to take out guys like Justin Simon here and there, LJ Figueroa here and there. Do I think there's a guy that can replace Pons on this bench? Absolutely not. But to give the team a little bit more size when you have the opportunity and you have a lead um, to close out, you know, maybe the last couple minutes of the first half right before you put all the guys in in the under four timeout, um, you know, maybe midway through the second half intertwining these guys just to give your starters some rest before the final five minutes or something like that. And we haven't seen that this year. And I think, you know, Mullen finally getting a clue and deciding, Hey, I need to give these guys some rest. Maybe it was the Heron injury where he's got mm. the uh, tendinosis going on that, yep. that, you know, really sparked this. But I don't know. But I'm glad that it's finally happening. Yeah, and, you know, that'll 
be helpful going down the stretch to know that they've got some talent on the bench that they weren't exploiting before. So it's a good, it's at least a good sign for your guys. All right. And looking forward, I mean, so Mustafa Heron, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, he's, he had to sit out this game against Seton Hall with, uh, with some knee tendinosis going on and uh, looking forward, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if they're going to have him available for the games. They take on Xavier twice going forward, which is a very tall lineup. Uh, you know, his size will definitely be be an asset if he can find himself to play. But at this point in the season, I, if I'm the coaching staff, I don't know if I risk playing Heron, worsening the, the issues that he had with his knees um, right before the Big East tournament and, you know, the NCAAs. I, it, to me, I don't know if I risk it uh, if he's questionable. Right, yeah. And that's kind of a – not – that it's on the same level as sitting as Zion Williamson for the rest of the game, the rest of the year, but it's on a similar similar level. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I agree. Um, I I would say I would think that Mullen is not currently showing and savvy enough to make that call one way or the other, um, and he's probably going to leave it up to his staff and to uh, Heron himself. But it'll be interesting to see if uh, he decides to to play in the remainder of the season or not for sure. All right. So moving on, we're going to do a new segment here um, where we're just going to look at the Big East, the MAC, and the ACC, and we're going to kind of give our opinions as to who we feel has a good chance of being in and who still needs to do some work. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start it off with the Big East and how that shakes down. So as of right now, I have Marquette, Nova, and St. John's pretty firmly in the tournament. Um, okay. with Seton Hall, Butler, and even Xavier. I still think Xavier has a shot, depending on mm-hmm. what their Big East tournament looks like. But sure. they take on St. John's twice um, in the last three games. So that's opportunity to get some quad wins on the resume. Um, the matchup that they're going to have against St. John's is similar to that in Providence. Um, so I think <clears throat> if Xavier's going to put in the work and, and get into the tournament, they're going to have to take down St. John's in both of these games. Um, not just to move up in their seating in the Big East tournament, but also just to move on um, mm. and see uh, and go past Selection Sunday, I should say. Yeah, so I'm looking at uh, Joe Lenari's bracket right now, and currently he has Marquette as a three. Um, he has, I believe... He has Marquette as a three. He has St. John's as a seven or an eight, if I can find them. He has them as a nine. He has Villanova as a six. Um, and Villanova and Mark and St. John's are in the same bracket in the south. Um, he has Seton Hall as an 11. He has... Yeah, I think those are the the only ones he has in currently. So, and Butler's I, Butler's a twelve, I think he has them listed as. Oh yeah, he has Butler in a, a twelve and twelve matchup against Temple. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's a pretty safe bet for those four four or five teams. Um, the Butler, the the twelve twelve matchup is always like a kind of a shot in the dark this early, but. Um, 
I think that if Xavier is able to get at least one of those games against St. John's and does some work in the tournament, they'll be in a good spot. Um, but their record isn't helping them right now. No, but I think I think if there is a fringe team out of the rest of the pack there, you know, everyone's balled up kind of in the middle of the Big East right now in sure, terms of the right. win-loss in conference. You know, I think I, th- I think I could see Xavier coming out of that, if anyone yeah, does. Yeah, that's fair. And that's yeah, going to be a big if, because right now I'm, I'm not even completely sold on Butler. So, Right. And, and now moving on over to uh, the MAC. Now, I think the MAC could be a two-bid conference this year. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, we, I think you and I have, all, have kind of seen this differently the whole year. Um, I don't see another team beating Buffalo in the tournament. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, unless Buffalo shuts it down for the tournament in order to save people for the for the uh, March Madness, but I don't foresee Nate Oates doing that. So I the only way that another team from the MAC is getting in is if they take that tourney win, and if Buffalo wins, then there's no chance, in my opinion. See, I I still think if you have a team like Toledo who can win out, um, they have, I believe, Central Michigan left who would probably be their best resume builder. Um, they're sitting at 19-8 and eight on the season. Um, and then you, you win the MAC West and face Buffalo for the, for the MAC championship and lose to Buffalo. I think there's potential there. Um, they probably are the best likelihood of another team getting an at-large bid um but like i said you're gonna have to you're gonna have to face buffalo in the finals and and play them to the wire um right and you're gonna have to kind of win out in the rest of the season and win the mac west i think that's the only opportunity you have at seeing because i i mean maybe if if a if a bowling green squad can finish up the season beating kent state beating ub in the regular season and then going on to beat UB in in the MAC uh, tournament. Sure, I still think you could see maybe Bowling Green come in. So I think there that is potential. Fair. There is potential in the MAC to get another bid. They're just going to have to be on point, and I think it's going to come down to either Toledo or Bowling Green. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's safe. Um, but at the same time, that's a lot of moving pieces, and that's a lot of relying on the on the committee giving credit to a mid-major. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. It doesn't happen that, often. <laughs> right, right. And, and one that doesn't have a quote-unquote, you know, like uh, patent win on their, on their schedule. So I think that it'll be a tough climb for anybody other than Buffalo, but not, un, not unheard of, not impossible. And last but not least, the potential eight-bid ACC yeah, it's ridiculous. actually insane. <laughs> actually, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so right now, Lenardi has everybody from on their rankings, Virginia, Duke, UNC, VT, Syracuse, Florida State, Louisville, and NC State all in the tournament um, at various um, seedings, obviously, but that's that's saying something. Uh he currently has Buffalo or uh excuse me, Syracuse as an eight seed, uh playing Texas in the Midwest. That would be an interesting matchup because they would then play Tennessee 
according to how the bracket stands right now. Who, if who? they took that game against Texas. Just, just a quick little ad-lib in for Tennessee. I did not – they really – they surprised me. I, I was wrong. I think I was wrong, guys. <laughs> um, don't put money on Tennessee. I, I don't know what I was talking about there. That was rough. That was a rough one. They have but... a rough little segment there, but – yeah. You know, LSU is no slouch. You mentioned you mentioned to me that LSU is your dark horse. Yeah. So I don't think that losing to LSU is as bad as it could be, but not what you want to put on the on your schedule. No, but I mean, going into March, they lost to LSU twice. Yeah, and one time they didn't even have uh, one of their best players. Right. So, you know, I it's it's hard for me to get back on to uh onto the Tennessee bandwagon to be honest with you, but Fair. we'll we'll see going forward. Fair enough. All right, enough drifting off. Back to back to the ACC. Um who do you have yeah. who do you have that's that's a, as a question mark right now, Alex? Um the only other team that I really could see getting in is a Clemson just based on record. And based on the, who they have left coming up, but that being said, I you know I don't think that they're going to get nine teams. I think that they'll the committee is going to stay at eight. They're going to stay with this the ones that they have currently, unless something some sort of dramatic shift in paradigm happens. But um, you know, Clemson sitting there. At a, Six and eight record in the ACC, sixteen and eleven overall. Um, no real major wins on their schedule that are to be spoken of. They lost to every ranked team that they played. Um, I mean, they have that one win over Virginia. They do Tech, have the one win in Virginia, Tech. but that's about the one that's about Virginia it. Tech. And for yeah. for everyone that's that's you know talks down on mid majors for not having the right wins. I mean, if anyone's an example of this, it's it's Clemson right now. The mid-major right. school with barely any quality wins that's probably still in the conversation and may even sneak in. Right. And like I said, I really don't think that that's going to happen. Unless maybe they get the win at UNC and they beat Syracuse. Um, but that's two big asks of a Clemson team that's not as dominant as they have been in the past. Um, they played Syracuse tough when they played earlier this year, uh, but they still ended up losing by eight. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, but I'm okay with eight, eight teams being in. That's pretty insane <laughs> by itself. All right. And then moving on to our matchup predictions for everyone's next game. Alex, who do you have in the uh, Buffalo versus Akron matchup, as if I didn't already know? Yeah, I have uh, Buffalo for sure. <laughs> uh, I think that it'll be – a close game, like it was in the first one, but I have Buffalo winning eighty to sixty-eight. I have Buffalo also taking this one. I think that Akron's offense just is not enough to keep up with Buffalo, and I think Buffalo is going to cruise to an easy victory at home, eighty-six to seventy. All right, St. John's versus Xavier. Like I mentioned before, this is going to be a tight one because I think St. John's—they're the roller coaster team that you know—they're going to give you peaks and valleys, and I think. This game, it's not going to be as bad as the Providence matchup. I think St. John's is still going to have a, a handful in the Xavier team. Mm. Um, they're not going to match up well, but I think Shimori is going to be Shimori-like. 
like he was in this previous game, and he will lead them to victory 78-75 to at Karnaseka. Oh, that's a very close yeah. game. So, um, I don't know a ton about Xavier this year. Uh, I know that they are notorious for just being a, a pest when they're not having a great year. Um, that being said, I think St. John's is going to play hungry. I think that Shamori Pons will play like Shamori Pons. And I think that uh, if Mustafa Heron is available to play, he will play. So that will give them the advantage there. And I'm going to play it at the stat line of 78-72. to 72. All right. And last but not least, Cuse has a big matchup once again uh, down in North Carolina against UNC. Yeah, I'm kind of sick of the, the ranked teams at this point. That's getting a little tiring. Yeah, these North but, Carolina uh, teams, man, they just keep they just keep coming for Syracuse. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that's a little a little scary. Uh, I do think that it's going to be a tough one to win for Syracuse. It's away. It's in North Carolina. It's at Chapel Hill. Um, Syracuse is not playing well on the offensive end. Yes, they beat Louisville, but. I do. I'm not sure though the lingering effects of the whole Bayheim thing will be. Um, I'd like to say that I think they're going to win, but I don't foresee them keeping up with the, the scoring that North Carolina has. So I'm going to give this win to North Carolina, 85 to 70. I also uh, I think UNC is going to be too much for Syracuse. I just think. UNC's offense is just going to overpower Cuse's defense in this mm. one. I think Cuse isn't going to find a way to keep up with them offensively. Um, I think, you know, it's going to be a decently lopsided game. I think UNC's going to take this one 78-64. to 64. All right. And as you all know, we've been doing Bill Walton Quote of the Weeks. <laughs> and here's his quote for this week. I've had 36 orthopedic operations, have two fused knees, my knees, hands, and wrists don't work. I now have a fused spine. But other than that, everything is great. All right. That's a good way to look at life, I guess, Bill Walton. I guess so. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any uh, questions, comments, feel free to reach out to us on No Vertical. That's our Twitter handle. Um, feel free to subscribe. We, we post stuff every week. So let us know what you want to hear. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys.